0: Normally, if you're being rushed to hospital, it's a bad thing. No one wants to be in the back of the ambulance with the siren blaring. It means you're in a bad way. Blue lights on, sirens screaming, zooming through the traffic. It's not good news. But it wouldn't be that way after a nuclear war. In fact, it'd be the very opposite. Those who were desperately injured and sick... Would not get anywhere near a hospital after nuclear war. So you'd only be bundled into an ambulance and taken away if you were in quite decent shape and had a very good chance of survival. If you see the inside of an ambulance after nuclear war, then you can breathe a sigh of relief because you're one of the lucky ones. If you think enduring and surviving a nuclear war is is lucky. So If the relatively lightly injured are being given the proper attention and medical care of an ambulance and a hospital and a surgeon, what do they do with the ones who are seriously injured? What do they get? Well, I think you know. I think you can guess. That terrible, awful thought that you're batting around in your mind. Yes, that's it. That's what they do with them they would be left to die in agony, in their own waste, until they finally stopped crying and stopped being a drain on people's time and resources. Nuclear war is horrific, isn't it? But you knew that already. In this episode, we'll look at the system which was set up in Britain to keep you out of hospital after nuclear war. If you've seen the film Threads, and yes, I know, I'm obsessed with Threads, I always reference it, but there's a reason for that, it's because it's brilliant. There's a famous scene in Threads where the survivor, Ruth, attends her local hospital and it's jam-packed with people screaming and moaning and there's blood running down the stairs and the hospitals and the corridors are just filled with filthy, exhausted survivors. It wouldn't be that way in reality, or at least not if the plans worked out. In reality, all those done-for souls would not be in hospital. Because there were a whole series of hoops to jump through, or limp and stagger through, before you would be granted admission to hospital. And we will look at all those different stages in this episode. Starting with DIY first aid which you were expected to do in your home. Look after yourself, first of all. If you couldn't do that, or if your injuries were too severe, you would make your way to the first aid post. If they thought you were worthy of being passed up the chain, they would put you onwards to the casualty collecting centre. And they, if they thought you needed it, and if they thought you were worth it, would pass you on to hospital. So there was a whole chain before you arrived at the hospital you couldn't just turn up at A&E, speak to a nurse, she would assess you and then you'd be seen. You could only be referred up gradually throughout the chain, if the plan worked. When the immediate danger of air attack or fallout has passed, the siren will sound a steady note, like this. So that's the sound of the all clear. No more nuclear attacks incoming. Different, of course, from the ordinary air attack warning, which is a rising and falling note. The all clear is a steady note at the same pitch. So in an ordinary war, after you'd heard the all clear, that would mean the worst of it was over. No more bombs would be falling down. You could all start to tidy up, try and get back to normal. But in a nuclear war, when the all clear sounds, your problems are just beginning. Now, in terms of medical care, which is what we're looking at in this episode, the first thing you would have to do is to look after yourself. If you'd been a good little citizen and had followed all the public information advice, you would have first aid supplies stocked in your cupboard, along with your tins of food and your clean, properly stored water. So you would now get your first aid kit out and start cleaning any wounds, bandaging up any cuts... If you were deft enough, you could even try a bit of stitching up of any wounds. But the important thing is you've got to look after yourself for several reasons. One is that, obviously, everyone in the country will be demanding a bit of help from the NHS, so you can expect long waiting times. But, secondly, even if the NHS was tickety-boo, was fully functioning, and had no other patients, but were just waiting there for you, you still couldn't make use of them. Not yet. Because of Fallout. For the first two weeks after a nuclear attack, it's estimated that Fallout will be too heavy to permit any movement outside. Yes, you might be able to, towards the end of the fortnight, dash outside to dispose of corpses or toilet waste, for example. But you certainly can't bandage up your loved ones and sling them across your back and go hiking through the rubble to the nearest hospital. You can't make any hefty expeditions for at least two weeks. For that hot fortnight, you've got to stay under cover. Not just you, but of course the doctors and the nurses and the ambulance drivers who would otherwise be helping you. And government um, guidance is quite clear on this. Very blunt, in fact. It says that when radiation levels are still high, they will not waste their NHS workers by sending them into areas of um, high fallout. So even if you were crying out for help, they wouldn't waste their NHS staff on you. That might sound harsh, but in this climate, NHS workers are an invaluable resource, not only because we need them desperately, but because it takes a bloody long time to train them. So if we did waste the ones we had by sending them into levels of fallout which were deadly, where do we get new ones from? There won't be any new ones, not for a long, long time. So for that initial hot fortnight, it's every man for himself. You are on your own. Even if you've got desperately awful wounds and burns or just a little niggle in the shoulder. Whatever it is, you're on your own for at least those initial two weeks. So the two weeks are up. Radiation levels have decreased and the crackling voice on the radio tells you it's safe to emerge. You have decided that you, as well as everyone else in the country, needs medical attention. As I said in the intro, you can't simply go to your GP surgery or your hospital. Instead, you would be directed to your nearest first aid post. This would be set up in probably a local clinic, so maybe, yes, your local GP surgery, if it was still standing, would now be transformed into a first aid post. Local GP surgery, local school local library, just somewhere which is recognisable and central in the community. People know it. So ideally it would be in one of those buildings but otherwise they would take whatever they could get. So you would go along to your first aid post and throw yourself on their mercy. You wouldn't be seeing any doctors there though. The first aid post would be manned by volunteers from the British Red Cross and the St. John's Ambulance Brigade or in Scotland their, their, uh, their equivalent is the St. Andrew's Ambulance Society so volunteers trained and skilled of course in first aid but not any doctors, not any nurses these kind, well-meaning, trained volunteers so you might be a bit disgruntled, okay I've dragged myself and all my wounds and burns this way And all I get is a a nice, polite volunteer. No doctors? Oh, well, at least, surely. You know, this is a first world country. You'll have plenty of tip-top medical supplies, won't you? Well, no. Medical supplies, of course, are going to be very scarce now. Now that the country's industries have been wiped out. So we all have to get by on whatever was stockpiled in advance and that's going to very, very quickly run out. So documents that I've seen in the East Anglian Health Archives talk about how they would equip this first aid post. So no proper medical supplies, or at least very few. Instead, quote, "...the equipping of the post may have to be from local resources. Sheets torn into bandages splints from floorboards, scrounged sterilising outfits, or improvised ones, local vans to act as ambulances, etc. So no, no tip-top medical supplies. You're going to be bandaged up with sheets and your leg will be set with ripped-up floorboards. So the volunteers at the first aid post, they would do their best for you. They would administer, as the name suggests, first aid. They would do what they could for you with their bandages and their floorboards and from the first aid post you would either be treated and sent home or if you were treated but were still in a bit of a bad way you would be directed to the local rest centre which ideally would be next door to this first aid post or very close to it the rest centre would basically be considered like a community centre or a library which has been emptied out and just filled with stretchers And if you were ill, but not ill enough to be sent further up the chain, you would be diverted to this rest centre where you would recover or receive further treatment. But the treatment, as I said, wouldn't be dished out by doctors and nurses. The rest centre would be... you'd be treated there by whoever wanted to look after you. Ideally, you'd have friends and family who were willing and alive and they would treat you in the rest centre so you would hobble along to a stretcher or a blanket, lie down in the rest centre and you'd have a husband, wife, sister, brother, etc to mop your brow, feed you, change your dressings, etc. And they would be assisted by volunteers who hopefully would have some medical training and they would be overseen by domiciliary care staff, so that would be medical staff who would be otherwise visiting patients in their homes etc. There would be perhaps one or two of them overseeing what was going on in the rest centre but they wouldn't really be giving hands-on treatment, they would more be standing back and directing the volunteers and the family and friends. So that's the rest centre, quite aptly named. It's not a medical centre, it's not a health centre, it's a rest centre. You're in there to recover, not much going on in the rest centre that you couldn't get at home I suppose if you had a blanket on the floor at home and a first aid kit and family and friends you could get by just as well but in the rest centre there will at least be someone in authority overseeing the the mass of injured people and there might be some medically trained volunteers who have a bit of knowledge who could help you out but really the rest centre is just a step upwards really from your own bedroom Of course, your own bedroom had been smashed to smithereens in the blast. But that's what the rest centre is. It's really just a big room full of sick people lying on the floor. And most of the care you receive there will be from your family and friends. So that's what the first aid posts have done. They've either patched you up and sent you home patched you up and put you onto the rest centre or their third option is to pass you further up the chain to the next level of healthcare which is the casualty collecting centre. You get passed onto them by the first aid post. You can't just turn up there on your own saying, hey look, my leg's hanging off. You have to be referred there by the first aid post because the whole idea of this chain is that there's screening involved, or triage, as they would call it. Other people who have medical knowledge and training are deciding whether you're worthy of it, whether you're worth it. So they would pass you on to the Casualty Collecting Centre. Hopefully you could get there on your own. Again, ideally that would be located near to the First Aid Post. These places would all ideally be close to one another. But if you're being referred onwards up the chain, then probably you can't stagger along to the casualty collecting centre and so an ambulance would collect you if an ambulance was available and if the roads were clear to permit travel but let's assume they are an ambulance or a requisitioned van, lorry, bus whatever they could get their hands on would come to collect you take you on to the casualty collecting centre so what happens there? well they have three roles They have to treat people, to sort people, and to hold people. Firstly, let's look at who works there. They will be staffed by GPs. That's general practitioners, family doctors, whatever you call them. So there will be no hospital doctors there, no specialists, no surgeons. It will be GPs supported by more volunteers and more domiciliary care staff. The function of the Casualty Collecting Centre, according to government advice from 1977, says that casualty collecting centres would undertake emergency treatment, including minor surgical procedures. A main function, however, would be to sort casualties into those who could be returned home or to a rest centre after treatment. Those who should have priority for admission to hospital Treatment and care would have to be simple and improvised. Casualties retained at a casualty collecting centre would have to provide as much basic nursing care for each other as their injuries allowed. So there we see a similarity with the earlier rest centres. Even though you're in this relatively elevated place, the casualty collecting centre, you've moved further up the chain, you're now under the care of a doctor, a GP, you still need to have an element of self-care. You still need to help yourself and help others. People not lying next to you on stretchers or on blankets, you still need to do your bit and try and help them as far as your injury allows. So forget thinking that now you're in the casualty Collecting Centre, you can lie back and expect sponge baths and relatives popping in with grapes and Lucozade and magazines. No, there's none of that. It's still grim, it's still horrific and to quote from more government advice there would necessarily be a lowering of peacetime standards so don't expect anything better really the only change here is that there's a GP on the scene somewhere so at your casualty collecting centre they would treat you emergency treatment including minor surgery Once they've done that, as before, they can say to you, okay, off you go back home, or if you're not quite up to that, off you go to the rest centre. They would also sort people, that means, of course, triage, so saying, um, okay, you guys need this, you guys need that, this little collection of people here need to be escalated further up the chain, so they will be sent off to hospital. And they, as I said at the beginning, are, even though that implies that they're very seriously ill, in nuclear war the world of nuclear war it means the opposite it means they're not too bad actually they can be sent to hospital because doing so isn't going to be a waste of scarce resources they've got a very very good chance of survival there's no point sending someone who's done for who's going to die so they treat you they sort you into who's going into hospital and their third task is to hold people now what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything good. Those who are being held at the Casualty Collecting Centre are basically being put aside into a separate room. Please, please let there be a separate room for this. If not, they're being put in a corner. And they're being... There's no other way to say it. They're being left to die. And they're being left to die without treatment and without painkilling drugs they have been left to die in agony. Now, if we stepped into that holding unit, that separate area where the moribund have been left, what would it be like? Well, doesn't bear thinking about, it, does it? Duncan Campbell has a go in his book. He says, After the third week, radiation casualties might accumulate in the holding unit. Others would be nursed in suitable houses. And he quotes from the guidance, management of the uncontrollable and often explosive vomiting and diarrhoea would be difficult and would call for much improvisation, particularly in matters of hygiene and sanitation. Quoting again from Warplan UK, The nature of a casualty collecting centre a few days after attack does not bear thinking about as the only centres at which casualties could have any hope of medical attention from a doctor, they would quickly become swamped. Each may have a team of four to six GPs, with a, similar, with a similar number of nurses, plus voluntary assistants. With staff working under intolerable, continuous pressure, it is easy to envisage the states of the holding units in which the dead and dying would lie together after a few days. As radiation sickness set in for those with early injuries, and the later radiation-only casualties came in, the holding unit rooms would be filled with untreated, dying people suffering from incessant vomiting, diarrhoea and nausea. The local authority controller might have decided to provide no rations for them, beyond a derisory biscuit or two. Volunteers would have to wade in periodically, to pull out those who had died. Everyone working or waiting for treatment would have to work against a perpetual background of the pain and cries of the sick and dying. To maintain the most basic health precautions without sanitation, water, electricity, without pain-killing drugs or antibiotics to spare, amongst seas of people dying in their own wastes would be next to impossible. Oh wow, that was a grim topic, wasn't it? Normally we get some some jokes in, or some black humour, some sarcasm, but there was no room for that there at all. Um, So if you want a bit of a laugh, you could go instead to my YouTube channel. Just a reminder that I've set one up now. Uh, I uploaded a video last night, which is about a brilliant book called Fallout and it's all about the horror and the panic and the fear concerning the nuclear industry uh, nuclear weaponry the legacy of it, the accidents that have occurred it's almost like a horror novel but of course it's real Uh, so check out my video at my YouTube channel which is called also The Atomic Hobo and I give you a nice little summary, read you some extracts from that absolutely brilliant book Fallout and uh, before we go today, let me say thank you to my patrons at the Ivy Mike level I have so many patrons now, 92 of them, that I need to break up thank yous each week uh, if you want to contribute to my Patreon, please take a look patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo, but for today let me thank the Ivy Mike level contributors that's Sam Marco, Viv Huddy the no-name kid, on a court order barring me from using my imagination in public, that's Quite a mouthful. Geoffrey Reid, Charlie Brown, Andrew Apostolus, Geert Kingma, Lane Raper, Amanda Nellist, Ian Whittaker, Rob Johnson, Oliver Wiles, Andre Russell, Julie Rose, Jonathan Fozard, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jameson, Andrew Key, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reids. Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace and Gordon McNair.